This is Nursing Australia Week, a week of entertainment, education and energy for all Australian nurses. Proudly presented by APNA, the Australian Primary Healthcare Nurses Association, Health Workforce Queensland, New South Wales RDN and Northern Territory PHN. Hello and welcome to your Monday lunchtime episode of Nursing Australia Week. I'm Matt St. Ledger. Now, each lunchtime during Nursing Australia Week, we will have an educational interview that gives you everything you need to know from COVID and nursing experts, and it's an easy way to top up those CBD points. And yes, before you ask, you will get a certificate emailed to you. Today, we have a mathematical mastermind, Dr. Nick Scott from the Burnett Institute, here to tell us what the latest COVID modelling is telling us about what to expect next. Nick chatted to APNA's Chief Nurse Educator, Suzanne Blackaby. Hi, Nick. Thank you so much for being part of Nursing Australia Week. This event is going out live to nurses right across the country who have had boots on the ground in one way or another throughout the pandemic. And they've got lots of questions. So we've collected a few of those today and we're going to ask you all the tricky questions around modelling because you work at the Burnett Institute. So can you give us a little bit of a picture about the type of modelling the Burnett Institute does and how that influences decision-making by our policymakers? Yeah, no worries. It's great to be joining you. A lot of the modelling we have been doing has been to support decisions made by the government. And the way we've done that is really by setting up models, firstly, to capture all of the data that we have available on COVID and everything we know about COVID at the time. And quite often what will happen is that the government will be approaching some key points where they might need to think about what types of restrictions to introduce or what types of restrictions to ease or the timing. And so what we've been doing is we've been running lots of different scenarios through the model to look at which options would have the greatest probability of being successful. And so if we're coming up to key points about easing restrictions, it might be whether we're looking at different packages of restrictions that get eased together So we'd run lots of different combinations and we'd see which ones are likely to lead to the lowest case numbers, lowest hospitalizations. And so this is then used uh, alongside all of the other relevant evidence to to inform decisions about how, how this plays out in terms of public health rules. So when you're passing this information on to, to government, what are some of the things that work really well? So what are the strengths that sit behind modeling? And then the flip side of that is what are the limitations of modelling? You know, it's it's not a crystal ball, right? It's kind of a whole heap of maths and, as you said, scenarios in an attempt to predict what outcomes are likely to be. But it's not a given, right? That's exactly right. So the, the main strengths of the model is that it can provide some guidance when there's no other data available. And so what's happening at the moment is that governments are quite often forced to make decisions about what they'll do before they have all of the information available. So they can't, they can't afford to wait for all of the data to come in on how vaccines work or all the data to come in on new variants, and they have to make decisions in advance of that. So modelling can provide some guidance by bringing everything together that we know at a given point in time and then looking at what the consequences of that could be. Of course, the the limitations are that modelling can't predict the future. And in fact, one of the things or one of the misconceptions, I guess, is that modelling is actually quite bad at predicting what case numbers and hospitalisations will be in the future. So when we see these 
projections, models are really only accurate for one or two weeks from when they're done. And further out than that, it's more for a general trend. So you can think of them like a weather forecast or something where you would think of it as being quite accurate in the short term, but in the longer term, it's not as accurate. And it's more around comparing different policy options or comparing different strategies where models have their strength. Right. So that kind of explains why the modelling changes then. If, you know, it's more reliable in the short term, over time we're seeing more and more data come in, whether it's from Australia or from other countries. So is this why modelling is always changing and some modelling organisations have different outlooks to others? How do all those discrepancies work together? Yeah, so it's it's really requires frequent updating. And so as soon as new evidence becomes available, the rules can be updated. One thing we've been doing is we've been providing regular updates to the governments throughout the pandemic. And so some of the stuff that's made public is um, just a small snapshot of it, but we provide lots of ongoing information and support. In terms of the different groups, different groups use different models or different types of models. Uh, and they do this because they might be looking at different types of questions. So as an example, if you were looking at questions around what to do with COVID in a school environment, you would use one type of model. Whereas if you were looking at questions about what to do with COVID at a national level, you might use a different higher level type of model for that. Okay. So no one shoe fits all, no one model fits all scenarios, right? Plenty of work to be done. Yeah. Now, Australia's a little bit different to other countries in lots of aspects, but a lot of that's got to do with our geography. And in Australia, we've seen really different infection rates and numbers and outbreak occurrences between the different jurisdictions. So what does the modelling tell us about what might be happening in different states and territories across Australia as different states and territories hit their goals for the numbers of people they need vaccinated before restrictions easing? What are the infection rates likely to do in different jurisdictions in the coming months? So the truth is that we really don't know exactly what's going to happen, particularly because of the differences between jurisdictions. Uh, but also Australia is really in a unique position globally where there'll be a lot of states and territories that will be opening up and they will have quite high vaccination rates, but they'll also have really low infection-acquired immunity because we've been living in an environment with no COVID, well, mo most states and territories have for so long. And so we're not really sure what will happen in Australia, but we can look to some of the experiences overseas from jurisdictions that have had really high vaccination coverage. And we can also look at some of the characteristics and properties that we know about the vaccines. What we can expect is there will be ongoing community transmission, even if we get to 90% vaccine coverage. So we've seen this happen in other places overseas, uh, but also we know that vaccinated people can continue to transmit the virus. So we, will, we can expect to see it to continue to move through the community, even if it's undetected, because a lot of people will be asymptomatic if they've been vaccinated. One thing that we do need to remember, though, is that even if we get to 90%, if we think about what 10% of the adult population is, that's about 2 million adults around Australia who will be unvaccinated. If those 2 million people were to get infected in a very short time period, 
that would create some problems for a whole manner of reasons. And so I think one thing that people will be continuing to look for will be just to try and slow the spread of infections through the community, but through the vaccinated community as well, just by basic public health measures. So continuing to test masks in some settings, you know, just really, really basic things just to try and keep monitoring and keep that under control. So even with getting to 90% across the country of people finishing their primary course of vaccine, we already know that immune suppressed people and people with more risk factors for their chance of, of getting COVID and for having those consequences of COVID that might put them in hospital or put them on ventilators, that that's a real thing. So is there a, an argument here for a different approach for those people who are more vulnerable in our community? You know, as you just said, we're going to have a bit of spread in that last 10% of the population and even in some of the vaccinated population as well. So is that something the modelling's looked at, a, a different test, trace, isolate, quarantine model or a different sort of public health social measure model for people who are more vulnerable in our community? I think what the models show is that we're sort of all in this together. People often talk about getting on without any restrictions and not worrying about the unvaccinated people because they've had their chance to be vaccinated and we can just let the virus go and not worry about it. But I think that's risky because it does forget about the people who do have other risk factors and they're immunocompromised in various ways. If we just let the virus spread completely unchecked through the community, that will greatly affect them. And they're, the, they're another key group of people that will end up at risk of severe disease as a result. I think having separate rules for those people or separate things for them won't really help because they will become infected most likely from people who are not immunocompromised or are not in the same category. So really it's about looking at it from a whole population level and just making sure that we keep it under control everywhere so that those key groups aren't at higher risk than they need to be. Right. Another key group in these equations are us, the healthcare workers, and particularly, you know, today we're talking to nurses right across the country. You know, from the beginning of the pandemic, nurses have been very, very aware of, of risk factors of bringing the virus home to our families or having the virus transmitted by healthcare workers, which, you know, happened pre-vaccine um, in aged care facilities in this country. What does the modelling tell us now or the data that contributes to the modelling from overseas around where we're heading with healthcare worker infections, particularly as restrictions ease and people who've received their full primary course increases? What does it look like for healthcare workers and their numbers? Definitely have a higher risk of infection just because of the settings that they work in. And so it's going to be really important to maintain a lot of safety protocols for them. Uh, in particular, that's, that's another reason why it will be important to maintain low case numbers. We don't need to maintain zero case numbers, but just to maintain low case numbers so that there's space and capacity in the hospital system, particularly in terms of staffing and healthcare workers and nurses, to be able to manage the cases. The 2 million or so unvaccinated people at 90%, you know, this is what, another reason why it's going to be important to slow the spread of infection through the community so that if people are continuing to get infected and are continuing to end up in hospital, 
They're doing so in numbers that don't put our healthcare workers at risk and under unnecessary stress. We know that healthcare workers are a limitation in the system in that they're they're very valuable because when they do become infected, that, that really puts a dent in the workforce. And quite often it's actually the workforce that is that is the biggest limitation and the most stretched in the health system, as opposed to necessarily the number of hospital beds or ICU beds, because they all require nurses and other healthcare workers to manage them. And something I think we're going to see more of, because planning's underway now with the Living with COVID task force, uh, for what care for people in the community who are COVID positive will look like. So as well as that hospital healthcare workforce, we're going to have an increasing amount of healthcare workers in the primary care space where I work interacting with COVID positive patients. You know, they might even be asymptomatic. I mean, we, we expect that, right, that we will see this increased community transmission, but there'll be a lot of people who won't be sick enough to go to hospital, but who will need monitoring and intervention at home. I guess, are we just looking down PPE forever? for looking after, you know, COVID-positive people at home and at, at what level and any timeframes around that? What does data and modelling tell us from other countries that are a bit ahead of us about what looking after people in the community looks like for healthcare workers? I'm not really sure. In terms of COVID and what's going to happen to COVID over the next 12, 24 months and going on from there, is that clearly it's not going to go away. And what would normally happen with infectious diseases, particularly new infectious diseases, is it will take some time before it becomes a part of a regular normal life. And what I mean by that is probably ongoing, we might need regular booster shots. The booster shots might be timed appropriately and eventually we'll we'll come up with new ways of managing it. But at the moment, these things are really uncertain and they're still being worked out overseas. And like you mentioned, looking overseas is a good place to watch because they are ahead of us. And so we do have the advantage in Australia of seeing what's going on there and really learning from that. You just mentioned booster doses. So I just wanted to, to ask you a couple of things around booster doses and uptake. What does the modelling tell us about the possibility of, of new variants and the need for an ongoing booster program at the moment, the recommended one booster following six months after the end of your primary course? So the one booster is definitely essential because we've seen from the data that the immunity against infection does reduce over time. And after getting a a third dose, so the booster shot, people's immunity does go right back up. And so it seems to be very high after that. Because they're just new, we don't actually know how long that immunity will last after three doses. And so we've got a lot more to learn just by watching overseas in terms of what happens following the booster. One thing that we do need to look out for, though, is the emergence of new variants. Mm. And these will continue to come along and we don't know yet what they're going to look like. They may have some tolerance to the vaccines, so they may be able to get through the vaccines better. Uh, And this would mean that we just need a different type of booster that would need to be adjusted for them. In the same way that the flu vaccine is adjusted each year for the strains that are around, uh, it might end up being a similar case for COVID vaccines. Okay. I guess modelling has never been um, more of a key word in Australia than it is right now, particularly in the healthcare space. But what can you tell us about the success of modelling and its influence on public policy before COVID with some of the other infectious diseases that the Institute's been involved in modelling for? 
We've been modeling infectious diseases for a long time, I guess, and it's been a, a useful way to, to help guide policy. Um, I guess in, uh, in many other sorts of diseases, it's really in COVID that it's come to the forefront of everyone's attention. And it is because these decisions about COVID are needing to be made before we have the full evidence available. And so quite often the decisions are informed by the modelling and the modelling is presented to the public as key evidence that's informed the decisions. And I guess because the COVID rules have affected so many people in so many different ways, uh, everyone's much more aware of them and alert to them than they might be policies around viral hepatitis or policies around HIV, which many people would know, but certainly not as widely as they know policies around COVID. Is there anything else that you wanted to add, Nick? Look, just, you know, just to say thank you to all the nurses out there. They're at the front line and they're doing unreasonable amounts of work and unreasonably challenging amounts of work. So it's, you know, it's just really impressive. And particularly, you know, as we open up and everyone gets back to normal, their lives are not going to get back to normal because COVID will continue. So it's just important that people don't forget that. Are you new to primary healthcare and feeling a little lost? APNA's Transition to Practice program may be perfect for you. A 12-month program that ensures that you start your primary healthcare nursing journey with the support you need. Click the Transition to Practice program link in the show notes for more information. So that's it for this episode. Join us this evening for a wrap of day one of Nursing Australia Week and hear about nurses doing amazing things during the pandemic. Also, don't forget to enter our Spill Your Guts competition Today, we were asking you to tell us your best nursing joke. You can text us on 0417-366-831. That's 0417-366-831. Or simply email education at apna.asn.au. And the winners will be announced this afternoon. So we'll see you this evening. Thanks for listening to Nursing Australia Week. A week just for you. For more information, visit APNA at www.apna.asn.au